All right. Let's do it. Uh, any Seinfeld fans in here? Yeah. Do, do you remember the, remember the episode when George needed a new pair of glasses and he bought the Gloria Vanderbilt frames? They ended up being women's frames. So these are my, these are my George Costanza glasses. <laughs> so I'm really proud of them. They're, they're nice, um, you know, progressives. I bought them about 10 years ago and they still work great. But I didn't realize until I got them home that the frames are actually women's frames. So just call me George. Anyway, um, we are in 1 Corinthians 10, but a couple things I want to mention. First of all, I appreciate Joe last week uh, helping out and filling in. I hope that uh, you enjoyed having uh, Joe here. Um, I, he, he teaches Bible almost every Wednesday night at Alongside Ministries, but we're doing Thursday nights at Alongside right now, so he was able to fill in for me while uh, we were at, uh, doing Shelby's birthday party, which was really nice to be able to be there. Also, I want to fix what I said on Sunday morning. If you were in first service, I want to fix what I said about Wednesday nights, because I really, that, I, I could not have messed up an, an, an announcement more than I messed up that announcement. How many of you were in first service Sunday? Okay, so I need to correct this for all y'all. Um, I was supposed to announce on Sunday, June 5th, when we were starting that new Wednesday night series, which was on June 15th. Instead, I said we were starting the new Wednesday night service, uh, not Wednesday night service, Wednesday night Bible study on June 5th, which is a Sunday. So I'm sure people left very confused and wondering if I could still leave the church. But at any rate, um, I also said that uh, we weren't going to have child care and there were going to be no food. But I was sadly misinformed on that, too. So during the eight weeks that we're going to do Kingdom's Companion, which is going to be myself, uh, uh, Tyler Thompson, and Nick Oviedo, during those eight weeks, we are going to start at 6.30 instead of 7. We're actually going to have dinner uh, for y'all, and we're going to have child care. So, and we're going to start that on June 15th, not June 5th, okay? I'm just going to preach on marriage on June 5th, if that's okay. All right, so I wanted to straighten that out. All right, good. So, we left off in chapter 10, where Paul has been talking now for two and a half chapters about what we would call issues of conscience or, you know, whether or not you're going to do things that in uh, the freedom we have in Christ, we're allowed to do them, but they can be stumbling blocks to other Christians if we do it in front of them. Paul's trying to make the argument that you shouldn't do that. So it's okay to smoke a cigar, you know, contemporary example, it's okay to smoke a cigar, but if it causes another Christian to stumble, maybe you shouldn't smoke a cigar in front of another Christian. Uh, but he's also really uh, needling down now on idols and idol worship, so he's talking about that, and that's the context that we're in in the middle of chapter 10. I didn't get very far in chapter 10 two weeks ago when we were in it, because I wanted to, t I, just off the cuff, because it came up. I, w I decided I wanted to tell you the story about the Baptist Foundation of Arizona, um, which I thought was really fascinating. I have no idea if you guys enjoyed that, but it's a little bit of Arizona history, and so it was interesting. But that probably took me 20 minutes to go through that, so we didn't do much Bible study. So anyway, we're picking up chapter 10, verse 14. Let me read through 22. 
Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless is not a participation, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything, or that, or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. Cannot partake in the table of the Lord and in the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So he again brings, if, if you remember from two weeks ago, he, he started talking about how Christ was with them in the wilderness, that Christ was in the Old Testament, that he didn't just simply appear out of nowhere uh, just because of his incarnation. And now he references that again, but now he's talking He's bringing that into the Lord's Supper. And he's using the Lord's Supper as an illustration of, of whether or not we should be participating in pagan worship and demons. So, verse 14, many Corinthians were slipping back into their old ways and going back to the temples, not necessarily for sex. We've already established that. But they were going back for the food that was in the temples. There were markets for food in the temples. There were also places where they could actually sit there and eat. And that food was often sacrificed to false gods or to idols. Now, Paul has already made the argument that food really isn't unclean because a false god really isn't a god, so it really wasn't a sacrifice. Nevertheless, you're going in there and participating in something that is pagan worship. So that's a problem. And if it's pagan worship, it's demonic. Okay? So you're tempting fate. You're tempting sin. Now, he already just said in verse 13, right before this passage, he said, look, uh, God's going to give you an escape when you're tempted. You have the power by the power of the Holy Spirit to resist this temptation. He's going to give you an escape. Here's one of the escape mechanisms. Just don't do it. Just don't go in there. Don't tempt yourself. Okay? It's the old but true principle Bad company corrupts good morals. Uh, in other words, be really careful where you hang out. And be careful, be careful with whom you hang out. You know, and I, I, I mentioned that Tom has said this before. We always think that we can kind of play around the edges of sin, sort of get a whiff of it without actually diving in, but that just, we're just courting trouble at that point. Because sin is incremental. We need to remember that sin is incremental. We'll do a little something and we'll justify it, rationalize it, and tell ourselves that wasn't that bad. See, and I can handle it. I can go a little bit further. If you want a great illustration of how sin is incremental, I learned this from a seminary student. It's not my own illustration, but I think it's a great illustration. If, now here you go, by the way, here you go, issues of conscience. Some of you are going to be, no, I would never watch Breaking Bad. But if you watch the show Breaking Bad, 
okay? Walter White is a wonderful picture of the incremental nature of sin. What, how does he start out? I've got cancer. I don't have enough health insurance to cover my treatments. I need to come up with money to be able to cover my treatments. I'm a chemistry professor. I'm just going to make a little bit of meth and just sell enough to be able to get my cancer treatments, my chemo treatments paid for. That's all I'm going to do. It's a, it's a rational, reasonable thing to do. Even though I'm selling meth, at least I'm taking... I, if we had better health care, you know, see how you rationalize it? And yet, what does he do by season three? By season three, he's a murderer. Just keeps justifying, going one more step, one more step, one more step, one more step. And by the way, if you didn't know, Vince Gilligan, who's the creator and the writer of that show, has a biblical background. <laughs> okay? We always think we can play around the edges. I'll give you a couple more illustrations, because I think these illustrations are helpful. Um, many of you know the author John Grisham, right? Okay. Uh, are you familiar with Grisham's only nonfiction book? It's called The Innocent Man. Have you, have you, uh, it's really good. I, w I would argue it's his best book, and I like his books. But I would argue it's his best book. It's very compelling. It's about uh, this guy named Ronald Williamson, um, who was sentenced to death in Oklahoma for a murder that he didn't commit. But he was sentenced to death. They convicted him on pretty good evidence and uh, sentenced him to death. And five days before his execution, they figured out that he was innocent, that he didn't do it. Five days. So he was ready to go. Had his meal, last meal all ordered and everything, ready to go. Okay? And so... I'm glad they got it right five days before his execution. But here was the disappointment with the book that I had, especially with the author Grisham. Uh, what you, if you're reading carefully through the book, what you find out is that Ron Williamson always made the wrong decision about where to hang out and who to hang out with. He just did. He had no discernment. It was only a matter of time until his associations and his decisions with where he was hanging out and what, who he was with and what he was doing, sooner or later it was going to get him into trouble. That was, I think, obvious to anybody who reads that book. Obvious. Grisham chose not to point it out. He just took the justice system to task. And I think he had an opportunity to also say, oh, by the way, this could be a lesson in discernment. Okay? Don't make silly, goofy decisions. Don't hang around the edges where there's problems like this, because you could that that'll get on you. Okay, so it was a disappointment to me that Grisham never made that case. I still think it's his best book, but I, I think that that would have helped the reader if he'd made that case. So one more, I'll give you. So I love true crime, by the way. In case you hadn't noticed, I love true crime stuff. So I went back, and it's been years since I read this book, but I just went back and reread it. Um, it's Joseph Wamba's book, The, the Onion Field. Is anybody familiar with? With that, I figured you would be, Ira. So in 1963, uh, uh, Greg Powell and Jimmy Lee Smith um, were tr getting ready to rob a, uh, uh, um, a drugstore in Hollywood. Two Hollywood detectives uh, felt they were suspicious. They pull them over. And uh, as they 
pulled him out of the car. Uh, Powell comes out with a gun. He's got a gun on e uh, Officer Ian Campbell. And so the other officer, Carl Hettinger, also gives up his, his gun. So they give up their guns to Powell and Smith, get them in the car. They drive to uh, Bakersfield into this big area where there's onion fields. And they said they were going to let him go. So they got him out of the car. Powell comes around and says, I said we were going to let you go, but have you ever heard of the Little Limburg Law? And Officer Campbell says yes, and at that point, Powell shoots uh, Campbell in the face. And uh, he goes down. Uh, the other officer, Hedinger, starts running down the street. And as he's running down the street, they're firing at him, and four more shots are fired into Campbell. So the tragedy of this is that Powell was the one that did all the shooting. Jimmy Smith threw out the book, threw out the book, kept saying, it's recorded that he kept saying, I got to get away from this guy, Greg Powell. He's going to get me into trouble. I got to get away from this guy, Greg Powell. He's going to get me into trouble. I, I don't know how many times, six or seven times it was, this is it. This is the last night I'm doing anything with Greg Powell. I know it's wrong to hang out with him. He's going to get me into trouble. And sure enough, got him into trouble. He ended up being sentenced to death. Now, California rescinded the uh, death penalty, and Jimmy Smith actually was released from prison uh, sometime in the late 1980s. Powell never got out, thankfully. Powell was really a sick person. But Jimmy Lee Smith was in the wrong place at the wrong time, but he decided to be there. So here's what Paul's saying. Go with that gut instinct that you shouldn't be around something that's bad. Go with that gut instinct, okay? So I think that's, uh, that's a helpful thing to know. Anyway, Paul then talks about communion and uses the Lord's Supper as an illustration to make a point. So you've heard me mention this. At the Passover meal, the third cup is the cup of thanksgiving. This is the cup that Jesus uses to make his appeal of sharing his cup with uh, us. And if you share that cup, it's, it's uh, in a sense, you're sharing in the benefits of his death and his shed blood. Then he makes the same point about the bread, and he includes uh, the concept of all of us believers being a body. In other words, what we do affects every other member. And then he explains that the pagan and temple sacrifices are actually offered to demons. And to drink from both a demon's cup and from the Lord's cup is not acceptable. You shouldn't mix the two things. It's also interesting, archaeologists in Corinth have uncovered temple cups, temple cups from the first century, and many of them have the names of the various gods on the cups. So each, each god would have its own cup that people would drink, the priests would drink from. So verses 23 through 30, he says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Notice that all things are lawful is in quotes. Uh, this was a saying among Corinthian Christians. You can do whatever you want now. All things are, are lawful. But then the quote ends at lawful because then Paul says, yeah, but not everything is profitable. Not everything will build you up. Not everything is beneficial. Just because it's lawful doesn't mean that you should do it. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. 
one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I don't mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake it with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of what because of that for which I give thanks. So you see in verse 23, we've seen this before, Paul's quoting the Corinthians and their licentiousness. They're saying, what's the problem? I have freedom in Christ now. I can do whatever you want. Paul says, uh, you don't understand what freedom in Christ really means. That's what he's saying. He says the freedom that we have in Christ gives us freedom from sin. It gives us freedom from living for self, uh, freedom from indulging our desires at the expense of others, that's the freedom the gospel gives us. It's the freedom to no longer live in bondage to worldly passions, especially those that would cause somebody else in the faith or outside of the faith to stumble at the name of Jesus. Uh, look at it this way. If everything that a Christian does ought to build up others, the Corinthians are failing. That's what Paul's telling them. And verse 24 reiterates this. See, another challenge of the Corinthian way of doing things, the old life way of doing things for these Corinthian Christians, was that everyone in Corinth really lived for self-adulation, self-aggrandizement, and self-patronage. And this system, or this way of living, claims that self always came first, just like today. So meism is not that new. We just have a newly packaged meism that we're dealing with today. The problem is, is that the radical Christian ethic has always been one that seeks the good of others first. We are gospel-centered and outward-focused. All of life is all for Jesus. Those are, those are redemption sayings. Um, I can't help but think of what Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, when he says, uh, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider everyone else better than yourself. Look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have the same mind in you that was in Christ Jesus. It's a really important little passage in Philippians chapter 2. And by the way, that, that, um, that saying in verse 4 that he, that he writes, uh, look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Notice he says, look, I know you have interests and you should look after your own interests. But as far as your interests are mingled with somebody else's interests, you must consider their interests first. That's what he's saying. Take care of your interests, but if your interests are mingled with somebody else's, you have a responsibility to them. And Paul then offers some counsel on how to navigate the struggle in this world of, here you go, because we, we all have this issue at one time or another. Should I eat this in front of others? Should I drink this in front of others? Should I smoke this in front of others? Talking about cigars in this case. Um, do I watch this in front of others? Do I say this in front of others? Do I do this, whatever it is, in front of others? And the answer is, according to Paul, you have every right to, but if the exercise of that right causes others to stumble, at the name of Jesus, inside the church or outside the church, then no, you really shouldn't do it. So to wrap up chapters 8 through 10, here is the summary that Paul gives us. So whether you eat or drink 
or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So two things to always consider when it comes to exercising our rights as a Christian and our freedom in Christ. Whatever is done should be done to the glory of God. So think of God first. And do not do anything that will cause anyone inside or outside the church to stumble at the name of Jesus. Paul says in verses 33 and 11, 1, I do not seek my own advantage in anything I do, but rather the advantage of others, so that in everything I do, the gospel is preserved, proclaimed, and embraced. Follow my lead as I follow Jesus. So now, finally, at last, the passage everyone has been waiting for in the next 15 verses. And here is my promise to you all here tonight. When we're done explaining these 15 verses, it's going to be as clear as mud. <laughs> all right, I, it's, a, it's a slog, but I want to read through the 15 verses, so 2 through 16, all the way through, and then we'll come back. I want to set some context and then try to hopefully walk us through what is going on here, okay? Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions, even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head uncovered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head was shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she, should not, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or to shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought, to not, ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Well, that makes sense. I'm kidding. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears, hair, wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Easy, right? Should we just move on to the next passage? Yeah, right. Easy peasy. Okay. So these 15 verses actually start us 
uh, on a journey through three issues that were plaguing the church in Corinth. So this is part of the context conversation, okay? These three issues. The issue of head coverings and hair in the worship setting. This is in the worship setting. Second of all, the problems they were having with the Lord's Supper. So Paul's going to circle back to the Lord's Supper and the terrible problems they were having in the church at Corinth at that time with that. And then the fact that spiritual gifts in chapter 12 were dividing the church in Corinth. And so we start here, 11-2, we go all the way through 12 with these three issues, but that's not the end of it, because 13 then is the answer to the three issues, which is the love chapter. And then chapter 14, we continue talking about these three issues and how God reigns over them. And then we get to chapter 15, where Paul says, and oh, by the way, covering all of that is the gospel of Jesus. So I hate to use this term stream of consciousness because some people uh, believe that that's a negative or a pejorative term. But really what Paul is doing here in a positive way is this sort of stream of consciousness. Again, this is why I, um, I say uh, it's nice that we have chapter and verse divisions in the Bible because it gives us an address to be able to find things. But don't let that... Um, uh, don't make the mistake of letting the chapter and verse or paragraph divisions um, not see how Paul flows through these arguments. Okay? That's really important. So we need to remember the context for head coverings for women worshiping. So the Corinthians and their temples and the prostitutes that were in the temples were a huge part of the culture in Corinth. Huge part. Uh, it would be like uh, it would be like living in Las Vegas and pretending that there was no gambling going on in Vegas if you were living in Corinth and pretending there were no temples and no temple prostitutes. That's how much a part of their everyday life and their culture it was. And then what comes next after the head covering, so this is the literary context, is how divided the church at Corinth is about the Lord's Supper. So Paul is primarily talking about um, this head coverings, hair length, and men and women, husbands and wives, in an effort to quell irreverence and divisions in worship. He's, he's worried about irreverence in worship and divisions in worship. So that's the context for all of this. Okay. Uh, James Madison, I don't know if you've ever heard of him, he was like important 200 years ago or something like that? <clears throat> that James Madison, yeah. Um, he, he once wrote that uh, the two things that will take down nations and organizations are factions and triviality. Factions and triviality. So divisions and people who focus on things that aren't important. Does that kind of feel like context we live in today, <laughs> you know, okay, and in the wake of chapters 8 through 10, Paul is saying, listen, don't cause others to stumble, and these issues are causing people to stumble, and then the context for the Lord's Supper discussion is that in the pagan temple feasts, they were wild, they were out of control, like, like crazy food fights and stuff like that, and there was jealousy, it was, it, it anything went at these festivals in these, these food festivals in these pagan uh, temples. So, here we go. 
Um, first of all, we need to understand that verses 2 through 16 is primarily about husbands and wives and the husbands and wives' posture in worship as compared to current social norms and misunderstandings. So, in the pagan temples in Corinth, the male priests who taught and prophesied did so with head coverings. Also, in Rome, men would, men would often cover their heads in worship as a sign of piety. So we're talking about a Greco-Roman culture where a sign of piety was for a man to cover his head in worship. So apparently in the church at Corinth, there were men who were doing this as a way to assert their piety and try, they were virtue signaling. How's that for a contemporary term? They were virtue signaling in church by wearing a, a hat or a head covering when they worship. They're saying, look how pious I am. I, I'm, I'm much closer to God than you are. I have my head covered, okay? Furthermore, in Corinth, the male prostitutes all had long hair. Okay? This is kind of a weird thing, all right? But the male prostitutes had long hair. So this is dishonoring to God because Jesus is the head and because worship is about exalting God. It's not about making yourself look good and, and pious. So that's a bit of the context for the men. For a wife in first century Mediterranean culture especially in Corinth, a head covering signaled that you were devoted to a particular man. Notice there's nothing about single women in this passage. Okay? So a head covering signaled that you were devoted to a particular man while not having a head covering or having short hair or even a completely shaved head indicated that you were a prostitute or a loose woman. So if you wanted to send a message in Corinth that you were a loose woman, you would cut your hair really short or even shave your head. So Paul says that it dishonors both God and your husband to not have a head covering or at least long hair when a wife was in worship. Okay? Short hair clearly indicated in Corinth that you were a temple prostitute. And in Rome, it was the same thing. In Rome, the prostitutes would actually shave their heads. Okay? So everything's kind of backwards. For some people. Everything was kind of backwards. Alright? So we, we don't really have these same cultural sensitivities in our context today, do we? So here you go. Craig Blomberg, who's a New Testament scholar, he writes this about this passage. Clearly, head coverings, or the lack thereof, send virtually no sexual or religious messages in contemporary Western societies. Right? Okay? Perhaps there are exceptions of extremely conservative churches that still insist on coverings or headscarves for women when they worship. But the message that sends is not salvific or pious, but of simply being out of touch with current cultural mores. Okay? Now, if, if you don't know who Craig Blomberg is, maybe you know who John MacArthur is. Some of you are like, all right, what does MacArthur have to say about this? Right? You know what he says? He says this head covering issue is a specifically Corinthian thing. So you can go to MacArthur's church if you're a woman and not wear a hat. Okay? I know some of you were worried about that. Okay? Also, we need to understand, look at what Paul says about women praying and prophesying. 
This is not about women not being able to pray or prophesy. Okay? Paul is not restricting women in that way. He's talking about reverence in worship. Now, I know some of you know this letter very well, and you're like, wait a minute, isn't it in verse chapter 14 or something where Paul says women should be quiet in church? Yes, he does say that. But again, there's a very specific and particular context for that. So if you want to take chapter 14 out of context, you can walk around and say women should never speak in church. That's what Paul said. What about chapter 11 where he says they're praying and prophesying? Okay, you see that? You got you to make sure that you've got the whole counsel of God's word when you're doing this stuff here. Okay? So when Paul says that by not following this instruction in this context, the worshiper is disgracing their head, the head being Jesus. That's the, the male, or the husband, or the wife. Okay? And then verses 7 through 9 is merely stating a fact. Read Genesis chapter 2. The man was not, in fact, made for the woman, but the woman for the man. And try to understand that Paul is giving us, um, Paul is using the order given in the creation account to show that what matters most is that both came from and are from God. That's what he's trying to get at. He keeps ultimately pointing to God. Okay? And the idea of individuals, male or females, using worship as a way to show off is just a type of rebellion. So there's all this um, self-centered individualism that's going on in Corinth, all of this meism that's going on in Corinth. And Paul's saying that is a type of rebellion against God. And then in verse 10, Paul tips his hat to the cultural mores. If a woman is married in church, she should be willing to show that she is married and under the authority of that husband, who in turn is under the authority of Christ. Now, I fully admit, I have no idea why the angels are included in verse 10. But I sought an explanation, and there are many potential explanations. And the vast majority of them are very unsatisfactory. Because <laughs> nobody really knows. Okay? One explanation, here you go, one explanation is that the angels might be offended. The angels might be offended. I happen to think that it has more to do with the potentiality that there was a, a, a Corinthian angel cult as part of the pagan worship system there. And so they were worried about, there were some people in the church that were worried about offending those angels. So Paul gets involved in that somehow. It's very, that, that part's very muddy. Now, if you would like to know more about the husband's authority and what that looks like according to Scripture, I would suggest that you not miss my sermon on marriage from Colossians on June 5th. Because we are going to talk about it there. We're going to get into um, June 5th, 12th, and 19th on Sunday morning. We're going to have a little mini-series inside of the Colossians series. It's all from Colossians, but there's two verses on marriage, two verses on parenting, and then I think it's five verses on the marketplace. So we're going to have a, like a, we're going to have like a little topical series in the midst of this exegetical series on Colossians. Anyway, Paul then gets to the key verses here where he says 
Both are not independent. Notice that. See, some people get, start to get all upset. Well, gee whiz, you know, uh, the woman was made for man, but the man wasn't made for woman. But read a half a verse later for crying out loud, you know? And you get to that point where you realize, oh, wait a minute, they're not independent of each other, though. That's not what Paul is saying in any way, shape, or form. Verses 11 and 12 demonstrate the complementarian nature of God's design of men and women. And he affirms that, the complementarian nature. There's not one that's superior, one that's inferior. They are complementary. If you were to do a real deep dive study on um, uh, Genesis chapter 2, and I think it's uh, verses uh, 20 and 22. I could be off by one in each place. But in, in chapter 2, verse 18 of Genesis, we, we see the first malediction in Scripture. So up until then, we'd have a bunch of benedictions. God saw awe that he had made on that day, and it was good. And then on the sixth day, he said it was very good. So we've had all these benedictions. He gets to uh, Genesis 2.18, we have the first malediction. God said it is not good that the man is alone, so he's going to make a what for him? Helper, helpmate, Help meet. I've never quite understood that, what a help meet is. But anyway, or a suitable helper, right? Okay. So the Hebrew there, the ancient Hebrew there, is a combination of two Hebrew, ancient Hebrew words. And it forms what you might call an idiom. And it's ezer konegdo. So the Hebrew word ezer is the more common word. Ezer means helper, but it's most often used in the Old Testament in the Psalms to describe God as our helper. And then the other word, konegdo, is much more obscure and a little bit harder to define, but when you put it together, uh, the scholars say it's pretty clear that what it means is reciprocating or complementary. In, in other words, they need each other. Okay? And that's why Paul says there that, that the man, the husband needs the wife and the wife needs the husband, that they are complementary. Now, the problem is, is that in Genesis 3, sin messed all that up, created all these problems, and now we have hierarchies and power struggles and, and all of that, which Paul tries to address in Ephesians 5 and Colossians um, 3, which we're going to look at in a couple of weeks. So he tries to bring the gospel to bear on that. But, but clearly there's this complementarian nature between man and woman in creation. Okay? And then, believe it or not, verses 14 and 15 are a missive about men trying to look like women and women trying to look like men. It's going to be very offensive, I know. Okay? You ever heard the saying, act your age? Okay, this is Paul saying, act your gender. Okay, I know that's terribly narrow-minded and bigoted. I get that. I'm, a, I'm every phobe that you can think of. That's me. Okay, I got it. All right, but it's true. It's true. Again, think about Genesis 1:27. Male and female, he created them. 
Many ancient Hebrew words for male, female, boy, girl, man, woman. In that particular passage, male and female, he made them. Some of you have heard me talk about this before. Others of you, this is new. The word for male literally means one who carries a spear or one who pierces. And the word for female means one who is pierced. So if you're not sure about what God's intention was for the genders, that should help clear it up. Okay? All right? So Paul says it's, it's really a disgrace for people to, to attempt to be what they are clearly not created. Okay? Again, I know, terribly narrow-minded and bigoted, but... And then in verse 16, he says, if anyone is going to be contentious about this, please don't be. Please don't be. So we could, we could also say that these passages, including the one that's coming next, about the Lord's Supper, they're really about submission. They're about humbling ourselves so that we line up under God. Okay, And I know it, submission is the new S word in our culture. Nobody wants to submit. Okay. It's, it's interesting. People at least understand and accept submission as a reasonable expectation in a lot of other contexts, like the marketplace and government and academics. But when it comes to God, we really struggle with that. Tom was talking about a friend of his once, uh, a pastor who was teaching on um, Ephesians 5.22, wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord. And, and uh, afterwards he was saying, man, some of the women there really had a problem with that message of submission, you know? And uh, somebody said, well, how are you with uh, Romans 13? He said, what do you mean? Well, Paul says, submit to the governing authorities. How are you doing submitting to the governing authorities? Are you, uh, are you speeding? <laughs> oh, it's just speeding. Oh, okay. All right, it's just speedy. You know, uh, Chuck Swindoll once wrote that the last part of every human body to be sanctified is your right foot. <laughs> we just struggle with submission. We struggle with submission uh, in, in, in so many of these spiritual contexts, and yet that's what God calls for us. Okay? So, any questions? I know that that section may have generated some questions, so I have left a little bit of time to ask some questions. Any suggestions for Paul or for God? Anybody? <laughs> All right. I'll tell you what. Before we go, let me just um, let me read the rest of chapter 11 so that we're set up for uh, what's coming next. This is now about the Lord's Supper which then leads into chapter 12, which I, I will fully admit to you, I think 1 Corinthians is, is one of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible, and I think it's one of the um, least appreciated chapters in the church, which is ironic because it's about the church. So I can't wait to get there, but uh, we get set up with it with, with this. Paul writes, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. So he started the whole uh, head covering discussion with, I do commend you, because there are some things that you're doing right. 
But then he says, in what follows here, you're doing none of this well. You're not doing any of it right. Okay? For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it is, uh, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? <laughs> or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in, in, in this? No, I will not. So he's saying you're treating the Lord's Supper like it's a pagan festival. That's a problem. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you drink this bread, drink this, <laughs> eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and, have died, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. That's actually a little bit hopeful there in the midst of this reprimand. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give you direction when I come. Ooh, that's a little mysterious. Anyway, let me pray. Father God, thank you for your word and its truth, and I just pray that uh, uh, your spirit would be the one that clarifies anything that was unclear tonight, and that we would rely prime, we would rely only, mostly, primarily, uh, on your spirit for illumination and for wisdom, for the resurrected Christ in us. God, thank you for that gift. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for being here. Good to see you all.